morning. How are you guys? Good? Good. Well, John is on vacation, and I have the great privilege to preach to you guys this morning. My name is Jared Irvine, and I am the director of Junior High Ministries. And I've been in this position for about six months, officially, unofficially a year. And pleased to report to you, and you can see with your own eyes, that I am still alive. <laughs> That's right. I'm happy about that. Um, but you guys know, I have a secret, a survival secret. Surviving junior high. Do you, do you want to know what it is? Yeah? Some of you, I mean, I know this is a, a service that a lot of eighth graders are in and seventh graders. So I have a secret, okay? Two words. Nerf footballs. <laughs> I know. You guys laugh at that. It's simple, and it's brilliant, though. They're soft, they're spongy, and when a junior high kid throws a ball at your dome, you don't die. And so, I like that. Um, no, it's been awesome. I enjoy immensely working with junior high a lot. Uh, they're great kids, so I've enjoyed it a lot. So that really has nothing to do with this message at all this morning. But if you would like, please open your Bibles to 1 John. We're in chapter 1 today, verses 5 through 10. If you, see, if you see a lot of red writing, you're in the wrong book. That's the Gospel of John. I know they, it's the same author. So if you don't know where 1 John is in the Bible, it's near Revelation. Uh, he wrote a few letters. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. But by the way, can 3 John really be called a letter? It's really like a long text message. But if you know, if you're familiar with 1 3 John, those are Wana kids. They memorize the whole book, probably. Um, so the main message of this morning... Right, if I had to sum it up right now, it'd be this. is that sin is the great separator. The gospel is the great unifier. Sin is the great separator. The gospel is the great unifier. And I really hope that this message for you is both an encouragement and a challenge. So often as I'm reading through the Bible, I have this experience where I experience both these things, usually simultaneously or both at some point reading the Bible, right? You, you experience this encouragement. You also experience a challenge. It's as if the Bible, with one hand, punches you square in the face. That's the challenge part, right? Ow, bro, that hurt. Bible, what's up? God. But then with the other hand, it's got an ice pack, right? Soothes it, comforts it. So I hope... That's our collective experience this morning. That's both a, an encouragement and a challenge. Okay? So let's read it. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. It says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. In his word, he is not in us. So really the first thing that we see is this, is that God is light. And that there is no darkness in him at all. And so it's not saying that, that light is God, right? It's like up here, this light up here. Like, hey, everyone wave to God. That's not God, okay? It's not even talking about luminosity at all. What it's talking about is that God is, is morally pure, that God is, is righteous, that God is holy. And for us, this is a very comforting statement, that God is light, and there's not even a hint of darkness in him. Because in this world that is so full of darkness, that's so full of evil, that we can say that God is light. It's a beautiful and comforting thing. But it also can be a very terrifying thing as well. And to illustrate that, I'll use an example from the Old Testament out of the passage Isaiah 6. Isaiah he sees God, right? He sees him in his vision, in his temple. And he's, he's high and exalted, sitting on his throne. And there's these angels, these seraphs. They're called they're the fiery burning ones, right? And, and, and they circle around his throne. And they have these wings. But they can't, even, they can't even look upon God. If we were to see one of these angels' things, we would be freaking out. And they can't look upon God. They close their eyes, they, they cover their face, and they cry out to each other. They say, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah, he's just in this moment where he's just in awe. He sees God in his holiness. He sees God in his splendidness. He sees God in his majesticness. He sees God as light. And he's overawed. And we don't know how long he's in this moment, but he actually then starts to recognize someone else in the room. And that someone else is himself. And when he sees this God who is light, how does he compare to this God? How does he stack up to this God? And what does he say? He says, he says woe is me! For I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips. He's a prophet of God. He speaks the words of God. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. This king of glory. And in this moment, he's utterly undone by being in the presence of this God, this God who is light, this God who is pure, this God who is holy. And this is, is not really that great news for us, okay? Because we're just like Isaiah. And so if every time we walk into the presence of God that we think we are ruined, that we can't even be in the presence of this God, so we really have to ask the question, can we have a relationship with God? 
Can we have a relationship with God? This God who is light. Because Isaiah says, Isaiah, God is light and he is not. Right? The same for us. As Psalm 15 cries, who can dwell with you, God? Is our question this morning. Who can dwell with this God? You see, because we don't just do acts of sin as if the solution is merely just clean up your act, kids, and clean up your room, and then you can have fellowship with God. It's, it's, no, it's a bigger problem than that. Okay? You see, sin is embedded. It's like to the core of who we are. It's our very nature. It's our condition. It's at the core, the heart of us fallen human beings. John Steinbeck, in his wonderful novel, East of Eden, he has this, this image, this striking image, in which he describes the human heart and the human condition. He describes it like this. He describes it as every human has this secret pond, right? This dark secret pond that grows in the human heart, that, that in it, evil grows and germinates. And then, and then it overflows from that place. And when it overflows to, it overflows to our actions. It overflows to our words. It overflows to our thoughts. And every human has this. And every human has known about this. And we don't like this. We know this evil is coming from somewhere, but we don't, we don't like it. We don't, and other people certainly don't like it. And, and so what do we do? We build this fencing system. Right? We have these elaborate fencing systems to keep whatever is in there, in there. And some are just better at building fences than others, right? Some have a lot of holes in their fences, or they don't even have a fence. And what, whatever is coming out, is, you see it, right? And it's clear as day. The point is this. It doesn't matter how good you are at building a fence. The secret pawn still exists in the human heart. And what are you going to do about that? Because guess what? This God, this God who is light, he doesn't just see mere externals. He doesn't just see outward. What he sees is the very heart. And so he can see right through whatever facade we put up. And he sees right to our heart, right to our condition, right to the secret pond, this sin that exists. And so this darkness that exists in us, can we have fellowship with this God who is light? Jesus uses a different metaphor. He talks about a tree, and this tree bears bad fruit. Right, so the solution is, do we just cut off the bad fruit? We cut off the branches, maybe? No, because Jesus says, where is all the evil coming from? It's coming from the heart, right? It's the roots. Where is it all derived from? You prune the tree, it's just going to grow back. Just going to flow right back. So what you have to do is you actually have to uproot the entire tree. What you need is a total transformation. So you see, for us, the problem is, is that sin is not a mere uh, peripheral problem. It's not a surface-level issue. It's a very deep issue. It's to the very core of who we are. And so if we're going to have any solution at all, it's going to need to be total transformation. That sounds like a lot of work. Let's read on. Verse 6 says, 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Right, so we would expect something like this coming off verse 5, right? That God is light. That God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. So if we say that we have fellowship with God, right? If we have fellowship with God, we're going to have to be light. That seems pretty obvious. But we can say we have fellowship with God all we want, but if our lives are characterized by darkness, it says you lie. Why? Because you have to actually match if you're going to have fellowship with God, you're going to have to be light, which means you're going to have to walk as light, which means you can't just say it and not do it. Right? I can say anything I want, basically, but it doesn't matter, right? If I say I'm an elephant, y'all believe me? No? no? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> what if I do this thing? Huh? What, what if I do this? You believe me now? My, no, she's good. Yeah, she will not be fooled. Why? Because it's just not true. I'm not an elephant. You're right. You got me. I'm a human being, which, by the way, is not a bad thing. Pinocchio would have given his left wooden arm to be human. Yeah, so. <laughs> You'll catch up. Okay, but. So that is our, that's our problem. Like, we can say whatever we want. But at the end of the day, it's about how we live, right? It's about our actions. If we're going to have fellowship with God, if we're going to have to be fellowship with light. We're going to have to be light. And reading on verse 7, it kind of says it. It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. I'll stop there. I know there's a second half. We'll get there. It's very important. But this first half, if the verse were to just end right here, and all we've seen so far is that God is light, that we are not, if we're going to have fellowship with God, we're going to have to be light, then it seems as if verse 7 is saying that, at least the first half, right? That we have to walk in the light as he is in the light in order to have fellowship with God. If that's what it takes, and we've already said, sin is a big problem. It's a central problem. That means we got a lot of work to do, people. We better get on our treadmill and start working it because if we're going to have fellowship with life, we're going to have to transform everything about us, right? The very deep core of who we are, if it's up to us. But this is why there is a second half of the verse, and it's super important. First it says this, if we walk in the light, he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So now we're starting to see some hope. Now we're starting to see a solution. Because in verse 7, at the end, it says, it's assuming that we're sinners. And then in verse 8 and verse 10, it's going to hit you with two punches. That's also going to say that you're a sinner. So John is not naive to sin, and he's like, hey, we're sinners, guys. But guess what? Verse 7, second half, super important, says this. Is that... In the blood of Jesus, we are cleansed. Now we're starting to see some hope. Now we're starting to see how we can have fellowship with this God who is light because of this, this blood of Jesus, which will cleanse us. And of course, this blood of Jesus refers to the cross of Jesus. This cross where, where he took our sin, he took our shame, he took our darkness, he took this secret pawn that exists in our hearts, he put it upon himself, and this God who is light, and he can't dwell with darkness, he must judge it, and he poured out upon his, he poured his wrath, he poured his judgment upon who? Upon not us, but upon Jesus. And there's this great exchange happened, is that this, is that we got his light, and he got our darkness, 
And we got his righteousness. And then he got our sin upon him. And so that we could have fellowship with God because we could be light as God is light because of the blood of Jesus. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel message of which we're in love with. But in verse 7, it does not take away the moral imperative to be light. That it still stands. That we should be light as he is, that we should walk in the light as he is in the light, right? Because there, there's this thought out there that, that Christians, they talk about this forgiveness of God, right? That God forgives us of all our sins, and that's true. But then they basically say, well, then you could just say, you can live however I want. You know, this was actually asked in the, the letter to the Romans, chapter 6, where it says, should we just, should we just bound in, in sin so that grace may abound? And, and, and Paul emphatically answers, no, as if, can we just sin all we want so that God's grace is magnified, so that it doesn't matter what we do now because we're just forgiven? No. The moral imperative to be right, the moral imperative to be light, still stands. It's still true. It's still something we should do. Why? Because where do moral imperatives, where do right and wrong, where does it come from? Is it some external standard, like external from God? Like it just exists, like this uh, impersonal code of ethics that exists in the universe? No. Every moral imperative, every right and wrong comes from the very nature and the very character of God himself, which means that every act of sin is not a sin against some impersonal code of ethics. It's an attack a personal attack upon the character and nature of God. Every sin is a personal sin against God himself. Why? Because you're basically saying, God, I hate you because it's everything that you're not, and I love that, right? That's what sin is. So if we say that we love God, but yet we do everything he hates, it actually shows that we don't love God, really, because why? Because we actually love the sin, which is not from God at all. It's not who God is. But if we say we love God, and we actually do the things that he loves, which is derived and sourced from himself, then it proves that we do love God because it's from him. Because it's who he is. It's what he's like. That God is light. That's who he is. And I love the light because God is light. And so we don't obey to, to earn salvation or whatever. We obey because we love God. As Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And this starts to make sense now because, yeah, I do obey Jesus because why? Because I love who he is. I, want he, I love what he's like. I love what he loves. And I hate what he hates. And I want to be like him. I want to be light like him, right? So love is the fuel to any, following any moral imperative, right and wrong. <clears throat> 
But sometimes, you know, sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you get to this, you get to a part, and sometimes you kind of like fill in your mind like what you're expecting to hear, you know? And sometimes there's things that happen that pop up that you're like, wouldn't expect that. That wasn't what I was thinking that he was going. And uh, this happened to me in verse 7. It's kind of the part I've skipped over till now. <laughs> but it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, fill in the blank, I would think God. I would think God. It's, it's what kind of he's been talking about. That God is light. How do we have fellowship with light? It's, with, it's all about God. But then it puts in what? With one another. But this, although it may not be what you expect, is actually super important. Super important. You see, because sin is the great separator, right? That we've been talking about this morning. Sin is the great separator. But it doesn't just separate us from God. It separates us from everyone. Everyone. You see, a central aspect of sin is that it wants to make you the center of your own universe. The center of your own universe, right? But there's, there's a problem. You think you're all bonded together in sin? Really, you're not. It's just, you're the center of your own universe. They're the center of their own universe. They're the center of their own universe. And so what you get is just a billion different universes. All one-man universes. Does that sound like fun? That sounds like isolation, separation to me. There's no fellowship there. There's no community there. There's no bond there. You may think there's something, but there's nothing. Because at the end of the day, you want to be the center, right? And so what do we do? We sin, we hide stuff. We, 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 we put something forward, a facade, something to keep us looking whatever, right? But really sin just separates us. Because we're not true. We're not light. But God's cleansing is actually what brings us together, right? So like the gospel is the great unifier. And we're getting brought into the one universe, right? The one universe where God is the sun. He is the center in which everything revolves around that. And so now we can actually have true fellowship with one another because we're all brought into the same universe in the same way by the blood of Jesus by his mercy by his grace and so the church is actually the only place that you can have fellowship true fellowship the only place you can actually have true community because it's the only place of which sin is dealt with it's you, where, where Jesus has died for you, where his blood has cleansed you, has purified you, and you've been brought into the kingdom. It's the only place that you can actually have fellowship because no other solution deals with sin. No other solution eradicates the biggest problem in life, which is our sinful condition, except for the gospel, which is only found in Jesus, which is only found in his kingdom, in his church. <clears throat> we see this uh, sort of illustrated in the Old Testament. I know you guys love the book of Leviticus. Like, 
it's your favorite book, right? It's everyone's favorite book, right? And I know, it's... Second Timothy 3.16 says what? That all scriptures God breathed is useful for correcting, training, and righteousness. It all, look, that's true. That is very true, which is why Leviticus is super important. And I know, but it also doesn't say that all scripture is equally readable, okay? So we can, we can let out just a little bit of sigh of relief, okay? We don't have to act like Leviticus is the most stimulating reading you've ever done. Okay, it's hard. But 2 Timothy 3.16 still stands. It's super important. And so what we see is, is that God creates this community, right? It's called Israel. And, and he is at the very center. And so they have to deal with the same issues that we have. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? Right? So he's at the center with the tabernacle. And they have all the tribes around them, right? How, do they, how can they dwell with God? Well, two things, really. One big thing. Sacrifice. Happened all the time. PETA would not enjoy this period of time. There's a lot of animals killed every day. And so there's a lot of blood. But how's that? That cleansed them. So how, that's how God could dwell with them, right? And then there was, second thing, they had all these laws they had to follow, right? And if they, if they messed up, they would have to what? They'd have to be kind of exiled from the community. They'd have to go outside the community. And then in order for them to come back in the community, they'd have to be cleansed. And so what's God, what's God teaching? It's like in this passage, it's the same thing. It's, it's, that, it's that God, to have fellowship with God, to have fellowship with one another, which is the community that in the least, in Leviticus was Israel, right? That they would have to, they would have to, first of all, be cleansed by blood. There'd have to be sacrifice. And then there was all these moral imperatives that, that to, to be people of light, they had to walk in the light. But when they messed up, they would get exiled in the community. And then to be coming back, they'd have to be cleansed. They'd have to be cleansed. And, we'll, and we see that in this passage, right? We see that where, where the blood of Jesus cleanses us, right? Sin separates us. And to come back into this community and fellowship with one another. Because it wasn't just like all individuals you know, with God in the tabernacle. It was a whole community, whole community. It exiled you not just from God, but from all the community. And to come back in, they got cleansed. It's just a little bit different now how that happens. Because Jesus came. <laughs> He's a big deal, if you haven't heard. And he, uh, he cleansed us from our sin. But it's a different way also how we if we read verse um, 8 through 10 8 and 10 are similar passages. They're basically saying the same thing. That you are a sinner. Right? It's like getting two black eyes right in a row. It's, it's basically just double punch. It's like an Oreo cookie. I said this for service. It's like an Oreo cookie, right? They got the two dark crackers, whatever, and then you have the, uh, the cream in the middle, right? So this is kind of how it is. It's like, so if you really read 8 and 9, and then you get to 10, 10's like, why are, you, why are you talking about this? You just said that in 8, right? It's a little bit different. It says that you're, you're saying God's a liar, which is, whoa, don't say that. But it's kind of redundant, is it? See, I think it's actually making a point. And Israel, like, they, they call these things called chiasms, right? So you have like two things and then it's pointing to something in the middle. Two similar things. 
and it's pointing to something in the middle. And that's what I really see this, this three-verse section as, is eight saying you're a sinner, ten saying you're a sinner, pointing to what? Nine. Verse nine. First John 1, 9, which says what? That if you confess your sin, that God is faithful and just and will purify you from all unrighteousness. This is the cream. This is what it's pointing to. This is our hope. This is the beauty. And this is how we come back into fellowship with each other and with God, if we confess. Now, this confession is not like God's like, uh, yeah, I didn't know you were a sinner. Thanks for telling me. I mean, he says it in verse 7, you're a sinner. Verse 8, you're a sinner. Verse 10, you're a sinner. Like, you can't get around it. God knows you're a sinner, right? So this confession is, is not like, oh, wow, I didn't know you did that. It's, it's agreeing with God. It's agreeing with God that you are a sinner, that you are what he says you are. And what it, it's, it's this humble action, this humble action of when we come to God, we, we lay it out our, at his feet and we say, God, take my filth, take my sin, take my shame. Only you, can, only you can cleanse, only you can purify me. And so this idea of a proud Christian is an oxymoron. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. Because to be a Christian, to be someone who asks God, who confesses, who professes that God, that I'm a sinner and I need your help and that my only hope is not that I do it, but that you, the God who is light, would actually condescend and come down to lower, to put himself lower than me and, 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 and heal me and cleanse me of my sin. When he, when he, didn't have to, right? It was his own initiative. And so I hope that we never forget of how that we even entered into the kingdom, how we even could be called Christian. It's not by your good works. It's not by what we've done. It's by his blood. It's by his cleansing. And all we did was receive. Are you going to boast in that? And so the difference really between Christians and, and really everyone else is not because you have nice cars or you have nice hair or you have well-behaved children that don't throw Nerf balls at people. It's, that's not what makes us different. It's because we were cleansed. It's because we came and we received. That we heard the call of Jesus when he said, Come to me, all who are thirsty, and I will give you everlasting water. And you know what we did? We came and we received. And we heard the call when Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. You know what we did? We came and we received. That we, that we heard the call when Jesus said there was healing available. You know what we did? We came and we received 
that we heard the call when Jesus said there was cleansing available. And we came and we received. All we did, all we did was just not refuse the call. We received the cleansing. And God is faithful and he is just and he will purify us of our unrighteousness. And I don't know where you are spiritually, whether you're feeling isolated from God, isolated from others, whether you feel like in this moment sin has gotten the best of you. But sin is already telling you to run away. Sin is, sin is already telling you to hide. In fact, sin has already done that. Sin has already separated you from God, separated you from other people. So running away is just getting further away, right? But if you see the heart of God, if you see the heart of our God, and this God, he did everything that, that he could, that we could have a relationship with him, that he, would, that he would send his son to die on the cross for us, that he would pour his blood out for us, those who are not worthy of it, those who don't deserve it. If you were to see that heart of God, you wouldn't run away, you would run towards, because you know that this God is merciful. You know this God is forgiving. You know this God is gracious. Because God wants a relationship with you, and he's provided it in the blood of Jesus. And he's also provided community in the blood of Jesus, that we can be one people. And that's a gift. And all we have to do is come and receive. So I'm going to pray, and we'll be dismissed, but there are going to be pastors, elders, deacons up here. If you want to pray, if you want to come and receive salvation, if you want, if you feel like you've been running away from God, and you want to renew your heart, you renew your devotion to this God who is merciful, come and receive. There'll be people for prayer up here. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your truth, your word. That you are merciful, that you are gracious, Lord. That you provided everything for us. That you provided salvation in your Son, fellowship, community in your Son, Lord. We just thank you for being so gracious to us. God, help us to be people who respond in love, love for you. We love, we love what is light. We love what is right. And we also love each other. Thank you for this community that we have, this church. God, help us to treasure it, to know that it is a gift. Every day is a gift. Help us to treasure it each day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.